Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Episode 10, A Mother's Madness. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy in England. And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and welcome to our 10th episode. Yeah, 10th episode, a mini milestone, and we want to take the opportunity here to say thanks so much to all you listeners for your encouragement and support along the way. It's really, really appreciated. Yeah, we're very happy with how things have gone, and we look forward to continuing on with you. So thanks for staying with us. And so today's episode, we'll be taking a close look at Catelyn Stark. Yeah, it's a packed episode today. Catelyn is quite a divisive figure among fans and is also one of the characters who's truly suffered even by George R.R. Martin's standards. And so we'll have a brief overview and get a grounding of her as a loving wife and mother. Then we'll take a look at the many dilemmas she faces as she tries desperately to keep her family together. Yes, she's certainly a mother in conflict through much of her arc and will lead into a close look at the Red Wedding and then her descent into madness and eventual rebirth as the vengeful Lady Stoneheart. This is the most harrowing episode we've ever made, we think, and we have readings of the cat's paw scene and Catelyn's death at the Red Wedding, two crucial moments in the book, so stick around for those. Yeah, we tried very hard to capture the torment of that Red Wedding scene. And we also have a song from the fandom by Carleen, and a pseudo-advert as usual. And we'll be trying to examine the complexities of Catelyn Stark with fairness and also with close reference to the text. So, onward with Catelyn, the Red Wedding, and Lady Stoneheart. We hope you enjoy. My son may be a king, but I am no queen, only a mother who would keep her children safe, however she could. However she could. So, one of the first things we learn about Catelyn Stark is that she was born in the south and is uncomfortable in the Winterfell godswood. Right. The first line in her first point of view chapter is... Catelyn had never liked this godswood, and it goes on to tell that she was raised with the Seven. 
We get the strong sense early on that she is not entirely comfortable with the North and its gods. Yeah, the stark words give her a chill, and she reflects on what a strange people these Northerners were. And not for the first time, apparently. But on the other hand, early on we're given a clear picture of a close and caring marriage between two people who know each other and respect each other. Yeah, Ned and Kat evidently share a deep love of family and each other, as highlighted by the empathy she shows Ned when delivering the news of John Arryn's death. Yeah, and then in spite of Ned's apparent joy at the news of Robert's visit, Kat's distinct lack of it proves early on her sensitivity to foreshadowing, a quality we'll see time and again in her, as she thinks of the story that she's lately heard a dire wolf dead in the snow, a broken antler in its throat. Right, and the passage goes on. Dread coiled within her like a snake, but she forced herself to smile at this man she loved, this man who put no faith in signs. So we're shown early on the bond Ned and Kat share, in spite of their arranged marriage and the contrast between Ned's rational and measured perspective and Kat's more intuitive or visceral one. And as Kat's story progresses, we learn more about her upbringing in the Riverlands. The eldest of three children, after the death of their mother, she seems to have taken on both the female duties in the family and the role of eldest son, including traveling with her father to visit Bannerman and watching for his return when he was away. She's presented as a dutiful daughter, accepting her early betrothal to Brandon Stark of Winterfell as a splendid match. Yeah, we know the Tully words are family, duty, honor. And when Kat recalls how she accepted Ned in Brandon's place, she thinks to herself, I have always done my duty. But what about family and honour? Well, as we touched upon, and we'll be shortly taking an in-depth look at, family is very important to Kat. Her eventual identification of herself as Stark is shown in the final scene of her mortal life. But as we'll also see, the ideals of family and duty can be in conflict, while honor can mean different things to different people. Yeah, so it turns out that the Tully words are actually very difficult to live up to fully. While Kat clearly tries to do so, the conflicts she encounters as the mother of Rob the King are often at odds with the ideals of Catelyn as a Tully and as a mother to the other Stark children. So, with that conflict in mind, we'll begin our close look at Catelyn as wife and mother. Okay, as we mentioned, Cat and Ned have a loving family relationship. This is obvious in their thoughts, as they both constantly think of the well-being of their children and of each other. Here is Ned on the Barrowlands thinking, He belonged with Catelyn in her grief. And then later in King's Landing, he yearned for the comfort of Catelyn's arms. And, of course, Cat's thoughts often turned to Ned, initially seeking comfort and guidance, and later out of grief. Her feelings for him, as her grief at his loss make plain, are profound. She reminisces about the connection that she made with the solemn stranger that she wed, thinking, I had love enough for any woman once I found the good, sweet heart beneath his face. And at the same time, it's clear that Kat's children are her priority. In fact, her role as mother, nurturer, protector, advocate and avenger singularly defines her role in the story. From the beginning of A Game of Thrones, we learn that she is her children's first and best advocate. She tells Ned in The Godswood, 
I am always proud of Bran. And later, when Ned thinks to refuse Robert's offer, she's firm on one point. You cannot. You must not. He is a king now, and kings are not like other men. If you refuse to serve him, he will wonder why, and sooner or later he will begin to suspect that you oppose him. Can't you see the danger that would put us in? Right, and it's probably no accident that in that one brief exchange with Ned about Robert's offer, the Tully ideals of family, duty, and honor are all referenced together. Ned mentions his duties in the North, while Cat makes clear the danger refusal would bring to their family. They also disagree about the nature of the honors being offered. Cat is certain that Robert's offer of the handship and Joffrey for Sansa is meant as an honor. Ned sees it as a trap. And this minor discord leads to some bitterness as his dead brother's shadow falls across their conversation. And this discussion about Robert's offer perfectly highlights the dilemma Cat will face as the ideals of her house come into conflict with each other. The family, duty and honour of her tully words are seemingly impossible to uphold together throughout Cat's arc, as they are in this conversation with Ned. Yeah, that's true. And so we see Kat's fears for her family early on and her inner conflicts. We also see that she's resolved that Ned must go to King's Landing. And a letter from her sister Lysa helps her make her case. With Maester Lewin's help, she's able to convince Ned that he must go south, cutting through his reservations based upon his father's and brother's fates. She feels his pain, but her children come first. Here's a quote. Catelyn's heart went out to him, but she knew she could not take him in her arms just then. First, the victory must be won, for her children's sake. But Cat's victory comes at a price when Ned tells her that he will take the girls and Bran with him to King's Landing. She has secured the future, but she's actually lost the present. Right. And in her loss, she will not yield to Ned's plea that Jon Snow be allowed to remain at Winterfell. He cannot stay here, Catelyn said, cutting him off. He is your son, not mine. I will not have him. It was hard, she knew, but no less the truth. Ned would do the boy no kindness by leaving him here at Winterfell. So Cat is convinced that John must go, even at the expense of Ned's heartache. For the first time, we see Cat's heart described as hard. It says... Catelyn armoured her heart against the mute appeal in her husband's eyes. And we've actually seen Cat described as hard by John on more than one occasion. But we think some empathy on this score is due to her if we recall that she's been placed in a seemingly impossible situation by her husband in the early days of their marriage. Yeah, the installation in the family of an infant more or less of an age with their own firstborn child without a satisfactory explanation, must have been very confusing and difficult to accept, especially as it seems to be at odds with how these matters were usually handled by Westerosi nobility. Right, and we do know from George that Kat's relationship with John was both tense and complicated. When asked about her perceived mistreatment of her husband's bastard son, he replied, Mistreatment is a loaded word. Did Catelyn beat John bloody? No. Did she distance herself from him? Yes. Did she verbally abuse and attack him? No. The instance in Bran's bedroom was obviously a very special case. 
but I am sure she was very protective of the rights of her own children, and in that sense always drew the line sharply between bastard and trueborn, where issues like seating on the high table for the king's visit were at issue, and John surely knew that she would have preferred to have him elsewhere. Yes, it's interesting hearing George's words about Cat and John. And of course, on our John podcast, we looked at this dynamic from John's perspective. But anyway, it's hard to judge where being thrust into an awkward and unanticipated situation ended and potential animosity began. We think it's important to recognise that months later, she thinks back on the scene with Ned with mixed emotions. Upon meeting Maya Stone in the Vale, it says she could not help but think of Ned's bastard on the wall, and the thought made her angry and guilty both at once. Yeah, it does seem that Kat realizes her position with regard to John was uncharacteristically hard. She was pragmatically aware that it would not be in John's best interest for Ned to leave him in her care, but she can't help feeling anger, probably towards Ned for placing her in the position and some kind of guilt long after. Yeah, just one of many examples of cognitive dissonance in Kat's thinking there. And in spite of their disagreement over Jon Snow, Ned ultimately leaves Winterfell and the shepherding of their eldest son into adulthood in her hands. But Bran's fall from the tower answers Kat's prayers that Bran must remain at Winterfell. Her subsequent descent into despair can only have been fueled by the guilt she felt at her prayer being answered in such a terrible way. Yes, I think it must have been. And then when at long last the attack on Bran's life by the cat's paw assassin brings Cat out of her despair and anger, she finds herself ashamed at her own behavior. She thinks she had let them all down, her children, her husband, her house... It would not happen again. She would show these northerners how strong a tully of river run could be. So we see here Kat is still identifying as a tully, a southerner, but we see glimmers of a desire to identify with the north. For now, it's clear that first and foremost in her mind is her family and the duty that comes along with that commitment. And now we're going to have a reading of Kat's encounter with the Catspaw assassin, an event that sets her on a new path that will have serious repercussions, both for her and for her family. When she turned away from the window, the man was in the room with her. You weren't supposed to be here, he muttered sourly. Catelyn looked at the knife, then at Bran. No, she said. The word stuck in her throat, the merest whisper. He must have heard her. It's a mercy, he said. He's dead already. No, Catelyn said, louder now as she found her voice again. No, you can't! She spun back toward the window to scream for help, but the man moved faster than she would have believed. One hand clamped down over her mouth and yanked back her head. The other brought the dagger up to her windpipe. She reached up with both hands and grabbed the blade with all her strength, pulling it away from her throat. Her fingers were slippery with blood, but she would not let go of the dagger. The hand over her mouth clenched more tightly, shutting off her air. Catelyn twisted her head to the side and managed to get a piece of his flesh between her teeth. She bit down hard into his palm. The man grunted in pain. She ground her teeth together and tore at him, and all of a sudden he let go. 
The taste of his blood filled her mouth. She sucked in air and screamed, and he grabbed her hair and pulled her away from him, and she stumbled and went down, and then he was standing over her, breathing hard, shaking. The dagger was still clutched tightly in his right hand, slick with blood. You weren't supposed to be here, he repeated stupidly. Catelyn saw the shadow slip through the open door behind him. There was a low rumble, less than a snarl, but he must have heard something, because he started to turn just as the wolf made its leap. They went down together, half sprawled over Catelyn where she'd fallen. The wolf had him under the jaw. The man's shriek lasted less than a second before the beast wrenched back its head, taking out half his throat. His blood felt like warm rain as it sprayed across her face. The wolf was looking at her. Thank you, Catelyn whispered, her voice faint and tiny. She lifted her hand, trembling. The wolf padded closer, sniffed at her fingers, then licked at the blood with a wet, rough tongue. When it had cleaned all the blood off her hand, it turned away silently and jumped up on Bran's bed and lay down beside him. Catelyn began to laugh hysterically. So, that was Catelyn and Summer meeting Bran's would-be assassin. We think that it's a really important scene for Cat that on one hand underlines her role in the story as a suffering mother, doing what she can to protect her family, but at the same time paves the way for Cat's journey from mother to murderer. Yeah, and we picked this scene because of the similarities with the Red Wedding scene, which we'll focus on later. First of all, Cat can't speak. Her words get caught in her throat, reminiscent of Lady Stoneheart later on. Her son's life is in danger, but unlike the Red Wedding, his direwolf is available to save the day. Right, and she also ends the scene here laughing hysterically and quite madly, as she did after Rob's death. Perhaps the first hint at Mother's madness brought on by witnessing such threats to her beloved children. Yeah, and there's definite shades of the Red Wedding in this cat's paw scene, but perhaps most pertinently, Cat nearly has her throat cut and witnesses the throat torn out of the cat's paw. This begins an association with cat and throats. Yeah, and it's no surprise that Cat's first killing, when defending herself against the clansman attack in the Vale, is by cutting the throat of a tribesman. It's like Cat has been put through this horrific trauma with the cat's paw, and it's really affected her. She's perhaps inadvertently learned both physically and emotionally how to kill someone. And throat cutting makes its next appearance with Jingle Bell Frey at the Red Wedding, where she saws through to the bone, not unlike what happened with her own hands with the cat's paw. And of course, Cat then has her throat cut after descending into madness and hysteria that she showed shades of in the cat's paw scene when she's found laughing hysterically by Lewin, Rob, and Sir Roderick. Right, and there's other small similarities between the cat's paw and Red Wedding scene with tasting blood and other things. And Cat actually thinks of the cat's paw during the Red Wedding's dark climax. So Kat's arc took a terrific change after Bran's fall and the experience with the cat's paw, and these early traumas definitely helped to shape her actions, leading right up to the Red Wedding. Yeah, so we're going to talk about this aspect of her motherhood arc now, how her desperation and experiences as a mother led her to make the decisions that she did. 
The similarities between the cat's paw and the red wedding scenes do seem to highlight how she was significantly affected by trauma, but there were many other dilemmas and agonies that Catelyn Stark had yet to face. So, Cat's decisions after the cat's paw also move her into a more active role in northern politics and place her on the agonising path she'll follow for the rest of her natural life. She keeps her children's best interests in her heart, but going forward she'll be faced with a series of dilemmas where her only options frequently leave her in a double bind or catch-22. So Kat resolves to travel to King's Landing to bring word about the attack on Bran's life personally to Ned, but in so doing she must leave her sons behind. Even upon arriving in the city, her faint hopes of seeing her daughters are dashed by the need for secrecy, and she departs quickly back to the north, having had only the briefest of visits with her husband. And Ned proves his continued faith in her when he gives her instructions for the defence of the north. He says, Once you are home, send word to Helman Tallheart and Galbert Glover under my seal. They are to raise a hundred bowmen each and fortify Mokalin. Two hundred determined archers can hold the neck against an army. Instruct Lord Manderley that he's to strengthen and repair all his defences at White Harbour and see that they are well manned. And from this day on, I want a careful watch kept over Theon Greyjoy. If there is war, we shall have sore need of his father's fleet. And then, during her return journey, Kat makes what is possibly the most fateful decision of the series when she takes Tyrion Lannister into custody at the end of the crossroads. And much has been said about Kat's actions here. Certainly she failed to heed the counsel of both her husband, who urged her to return to Winterfell immediately with instructions for his bannerman, and also Peter Baelish, who reminded Ned and Kat that The imp will no doubt swear the blade was lost or stolen while he was at Winterfell, and with his hireling dead, who is there to give him the lie? And then Littlefinger went on to advise them just to toss the dagger in the river and just forget about it. But, as noted, Catelyn Stark is first and foremost a mother. Recent events have also led her to identify more with the North than she seems to have done in the prior 15 years of her marriage. A classic example of how a Stark might choose to deal with the imp is seen in Ned's line to Littlefinger. I am a Stark of Winterfell. My son lies crippled, perhaps dying. He would be dead, and Catelyn with him, but for a wolf pup we found in the snow. If you truly believe I could forget that, you are as big a fool now as when you took up sword against my brother. Yeah, perhaps when confronted with Tyrion at the inn, Cat's maternal instincts to protect and Avenger children led her to choose a path that might have seemed like something Ned might do. Certainly, she had only a split second to decide, as she thinks here. There was no time to think it through, only the moment and the sound of her own voice ringing in her ears. Right, and her actions were in keeping with her increasingly northern identity. This is emphasized by Tyrion's thoughts when he finds himself on the high road to the Vale. It says, All his life Tyrion had prided himself on his cunning, the only gift the gods had seen fit to give him, and yet this seven times damned she-wolf, Catelyn Stark, had outwitted him at every turn. 
Yeah, the she-wolf description tying Cat to Northern identity there. And while it's really impossible to predict what might have happened if Cat hadn't encountered Tyrion at the inn, we can't ignore the fact that the seizure of Tyrion Lannister would have absolutely dire consequences for all those Cat held dear. And whatever conclusion the reader draws about her actions, it seems clear that she ultimately drew the blame upon herself. The early stirrings of Cat's cognitive dissonance are seen by Tyrion himself when he notes a flicker of doubt in her eyes in the face of his protests of innocence. Yeah, Tyrion points out how illogical it would be to arm a cat's paw with his own blade, and we see this flicker of doubt as she's taking him into the Vale. Cat begins to doubt herself in other ways, too. After she leaves the Vale and rejoins Rob, it says, Cat had fought to keep herself strong, for Ned's sake and for this stubborn, brave son of theirs. She had put despair and fear aside as if they were garments she did not choose to wear, but now she saw that she had donned them after all. And later her fears are clearly spelled out, along with a renewed determination to become a northerner for once and for all. It says she feared for her lord father and wondered at his ominous silence. She feared for her brother Edmure and prayed that the gods would watch over him if he must face the kinslayer in battle. She feared for Ned and her girls and for the sweet sons she had left behind at Winterfell. And yet there was nothing she could do for any of them and so she made herself put all thought of them aside. You must save your strength for Rob, she told herself. He is the only one you can help. You must be as fierce and hard as the North, Catelyn Tully. You must be a Stark for true now, like your son. So, following Whispering Wood, when word reaches them of Ned's execution, her fears coalesce into true despair. She blames herself for her husband's death and the mortal peril her daughters are now in. It was your doing, yours, a voice whispered inside her, if you had not taken it upon yourself to seize the dwarf. Yeah, we can see how Cat takes responsibility there. And in the meantime, Cat's taken on the role of advisor to her son. While she tries to give him the space to make his own decisions, it's her who emphasises to Rob the importance of complying with Lord Walder's demands. Yes, she does. And we also see Kat's thoughts that she seeks the wisdom of her husband's example. And then when she volunteers to parley with Lord Walder alone in the twins, there's a chilling foreshadowing of her fate to come. Yeah, here's the quote. The first bit is spoken and the second bit is her internal monologue. Lord Walder is my father's bannerman. I have known him since I was a girl. He would never offer me any harm. Unless he saw some profit in it, she added silently, but some truths did not bear saying, and some lies were necessary. And in that final phrase, I think we see an echo of Ned's thoughts in King's Landing. Some secrets are too dangerous to share, even with those you love and trust. And talking of Ned, much has been said about Ned's honour. His eldest daughter declared to herself, My father always told the truth. And also Robert Baratheon mocked Ned with, You never could lie for love nor honour, Ned Stark. But in Ned's arc, and now in Catelyn's as well, we see the idea that lying can be a necessity. Right, and lying like this seems at odds with the ideals of Northern honour, 
But we see time and again the theme of protecting children at any cost in Ned's Ark. This is clearly a philosophy that both Ned and Kat deploy with the best interest of their family in mind, illustrating again the difficulty of negotiating the Tully words, family, duty, honor. Yeah, and as we saw with Ned, when he was willing to deliver a false confession to the Lannisters to save his daughter, Kat reveals herself willing to go to any lengths to get her daughters back in counsel with Rob's Bannerman. It says... I will mourn for Ned until the end of my days, but I must think of the living. I want my daughters back, and the Queen holds them still. If I must trade our four Lannisters for their two Starks, I will call that a bargain and thank the gods. So, when the Lords of the North and the Riverlands fail to heed her plea for peace, Kat finds herself despairing. She's wondering if she will be able to save her girls at the point when Great John Umber, swiftly followed by all the other lords, declares her son the king in the north. And what followed must have seemed like the death of hope in terms of negotiating her daughters back safely as every lord in the room rejected the Lannisters and the Iron Throne and vowed to fight on in Rob's name for honour, for revenge and for independence. And when Rob, newly made king, sends Cleos Frey as an envoy to King's Landing, a behind-the-scenes exchange reveals that Rob has begun to move away from his mother's advice. He refuses to offer Jamie Lannister in exchange for his sisters, making the much less attractive offer of Willem Lannister and Tyon Frey. Yeah, here, Kat knows that Cersei won't agree, and there's a really bitter disagreement. Her harsh words wound Rob, And in her guilt, she thinks, God's be good. What is to become of me? He is doing his best, trying so hard. I know it. I see it. And yet I have lost my Ned, the rock my life was built on. I could not bear to lose the girls as well. So despair and self-doubt are clearly replacing Kat's earlier confidence and conviction. When she thinks about Ned's bones returning to the north, her thoughts make it clear. Living men had gone south and cold bones would return. Ned had the truth of it, she thought. His place was at Winterfell. He said as much, but would I hear him? No. Go, I told him. You must be Robert's hand for the good of our house, for the sake of our children. My doing. Mine, no other. And Kat tries to reassert herself as advisor, but perhaps due to their persistent disagreement over the hostage exchange... She fails to make it clear that Ned's final orders were to keep a very close eye on Theon Greyjoy. Rather than firmly reminding a son that it was a father's wish that Theon be kept close, she argues from her own perspective. Here's the passage. I'll say again, I would sooner you sent someone else to Pike and kept Theon close to you. Who better to treat with Balon Greyjoy than his son? Jason Malister offered Catelyn, Titus Blackwood, Severon Frey, anyone but not Theon. Her son squatted beside Grey Wind, ruffling the wolf's fur and incidentally avoiding her eyes. Theon's fought bravely for us. I told you how he saved Bran from those wildlings in the wolfswood. If the Lannisters won't make peace, I'll have need of Lord Greyjoy's longships. You'll have them sooner if you keep his son as a hostage. He's been a hostage half his life. 
For a good reason, Catelyn said. Balon Greyjoy is not a man to be trusted. He wore a crown himself, remember? If only for a season. He may aspire to wear one again. Hmm, so a really important passage there. And Rob's insistence on Theon's loyalty, even to the point of forgetting his own righteous anger over the scene with the wildlings in the Wolfswood, seems almost like a stubborn reaction to his interfering mother. So the reader's left to wonder if Catelyn has actually done her duty in relaying Ned's message clearly, or if the fraught situation has led to a breakdown of communication between mother and son. Yeah, nonetheless, it is Cat that Rob chooses to send as an emissary to Renly Baratheon. Perhaps because he can't spare anyone else, but also because there are so few people that Rob can trust. Here we see the genesis of the northern plan to lure Tywin Lannister from the fastness of Harrenhal. While the plan would ultimately fail, it should be noted that it was Cat herself who originally suggested the means of drawing Lord Tywin into the field to her uncle. Yeah, so she was functioning as an advisor there. And then as a reluctant emissary to Renly's host in the south, Cat's weariness with conflict shows clearly when she thinks, I want to weep. I want to be comforted. I'm so tired of being strong. I want to be foolish and frightened for once, just for a small while. That's all. A day. An hour. And furthermore, her frustration with the southern chivalry she encounters highlights her increasingly northern identity. In a reversal of her earlier aversion to the Stark words, she tells Lord Rowan and Brienne that she pities the young knights of Renly's army because they are the knights of summer and winter is coming. And then after failing in her diplomatic mission and witnessing the breakdown of relations between Renly and Stannis, she seeks the comfort of her gods on the eve of their battle. She prays for her family, but her despair is once again plain. I have come so many thousands of leagues, and for what? Who have I served? I have lost my daughters. Rob does not want me, and Bran and Rickon must surely think me a cold and unnatural mother. I was not even with Ned when he died. Mm, the cold and unnatural mother sounds a bit like Lady Stoneheart there. And following Renly's death... She has what may be a premonition of the danger her son is facing when she recalls the words of Stannis Baratheon. And here's his quote, I am the rightful king, and your son no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. And given what she witnessed in Renly's tent, it's probably not surprising that a chill went through her when she recalled the naked threat. En route back to Riverrun, she tells Brienne, my son may be a king, but I am no queen, only a mother who would keep her children safe, however she could. Yeah, and this crystallises everything Kat has done in her arc so far. Faced with dilemmas and impossible choices, she attempts to do her duty, to choose the path that Ned would take, or that honour would dictate. What she has found, to her sorrow, is that these ideals can be impossible to live up to fully. As in that scene with Ned when she convinced him to accept Robert's offer, she's learned that keeping family first can come at a price. Not unlike Jamie, whose passionate speech about conflicting vows is delivered to Kat herself, 
she finds herself torn. She thinks, would that there were five of me, one for each child, so I might keep them all safe. And here's the root of Kat's dilemma. She is continually forced to choose between actions that might benefit one child at the expense of another. Her long exposure to this type of double bind wears ever more heavily upon her. Exactly. Whatever you think of the decisions Kat made throughout the story, I think it's fair to say she was often in almost impossible positions and she might have suffered either way. As a mother who cared so much for her children, these dilemmas often required her to prioritise one child over another, when in truth they all needed her and she knew it. Yeah, these mother's dilemmas begin to take their toll on her psychologically, despite her best efforts to stay strong. Now we see her inner doubts become more pronounced and her weariness and grief catch up with her. Up until now, in spite of her weariness and doubt, she's maintained what Brienne identifies as courage, not battle courage perhaps, but a kind of woman's courage. Now, the contrast to her reaction to Bran's fall and the attack by the cat's paw to her time with Rob could not be more stark. We begin to see her despair in nearly every thought. Yeah, that's right. Looking at almost every thought Cat has now, she is suffering. Her mind is in pain, continual despair in her internal monologue. She recalls Sansa and her excitement at court life here. I told her there would be singers at the king's court. I told her she would hear music of all sorts, that her father could find some master to help her learn the high harp. Oh, gods forgive me. And in the face of military victories, she thinks to herself, but if we are winning, why am I so afraid? Yeah, so we really see her doubt there. But it's the news from Winterfell of the deaths of her youngest sons that drives her to her knees. I am become a sour woman, Catelyn thought. I take no joy in mead nor meat, and song and laughter have become suspicious strangers to me. I am a creature of grief and dust and bitter longings. There is an empty place within me where my heart was once. So, besides being a possible allusion to a future as Lady Stoneheart with the hearts there, this statement captures Kat's inner viewpoint for really the rest of her arc. From here forward, nearly all of her inner musings are tinged with grief, remorse and self-doubt. It's really quite tragic. She tells Brienne, I was certain the boys would be safe so long as the direwolves were with them, like Rob with his grey wind. But my daughters have no wolves now. And it seems clear from her tone that she blames herself for this, as she feels personally responsible for them being in King's Landing. And she reminisces about the girls to Brienne, Sansa with the Lannisters, and Arya, whom she thinks is dead. It's this that leads her to tell Brienne, in both a chilling foreshadowing of her new persona as Lady Stoneheart, and a poignant mirror of Arya's prayers. I want them all dead, Brienne. Theon Greyjoy first, then Jamie Lannister, and Cersei, and the Imp. Every one. Every one. Yeah, so we get a good glimpse of her vengeful side there. And when Cat releases Jamie and sends him to King's Landing to procure the release of her daughters, the more sympathetic of Rob's bannermen deem her act as a mother's madness. While this might be true, 
Cat refuses to shy away from any responsibility for the massive gamble that she took with Rob's only bargaining chip. She says, I understood what I was doing and knew it was treasonous. Yet, as her own brother takes steps to retrieve the Kingslayer, numerous others offer words of sympathy. In fact, the storm might have blown over if not for two critical events. When Rob returns from the crag with his new wife in tow, events are already in motion to bring about his downfall. But it's the rage-filled act of revenge by Rickard Karstark, precipitated by Kat's release of Jamie, that ultimately seals the fate of the Northern Army. If the Karstarks had not abandoned Rob, the fracturing of his army would not have left him in such a weak position that he had no choice but to humble himself to Lord Walder and offer his uncle Edmure in his place. And when the dead squires, Tion Frey and Willem Lannister, are laid out in front of Rob, Cat wonders, does he see Bran and Rickon as well? She might have wept, but there were no tears left in her. Will they lay Sansa down naked beneath the Iron Throne after they had killed her? And then when an unmoved Rickard Karstark speaks of a father's vengeance, Cat's fears and horror merge into one thought. I did this. These two boys died so my daughters might live. Yeah, and following her father's death and the grievous news of the burning of their home at Winterfell, Cat and Rob's thoughts turn again to the north. Right, and once more Rob finds himself in need of Lord Walter's crossing, and plans are laid for the retaking of the north. Cat is resolved to be a northerner, realizing that her example will be critical to her son's success. She thinks... The Northmen did not lack for courage, but they were far from home, with little enough to sustain them but for their faith in their young king. That faith must be protected at all costs. I must be stronger. I must be strong for Rob. If I despair, my grief will consume me. Yet Kat's grief and guilt persist as she reflects back upon discussing being a southern lady married into the North with Liness Hightower, the erstwhile wife of Jura Mormont. It says, One night, after several cups of wine, she had confessed to Catelyn that the North was no place for a Hightower of Old Town. There was a Tully of Riverrun who once felt the same, but in time she found much here she could love. All lost now, she reflected. Winterfell and Ned, Bran and Rickon, Sansa... Aya, all gone. Only Rob remains. Had there been too much of Liness Hightower in her after all, and too little of the Starks? Would that I had known how to wield an axe, perhaps I might have been able to protect them better. Hmm. As her fears threaten to overwhelm her and her sense of dread mounts, when Rob raises the issue of his succession, she tells him, Nothing will happen to you. Nothing. I could not stand it. They took Ned and your sweet brothers. Sansa is married. Arya is lost. My father's dead. If anything befell you, I would go mad, Rob. You are all I have left. You are all the North has left. Right. And the line about going mad if Rob dies obviously foreshadows her descent into madness when Rob actually does die, which we're going to cover later. Yeah, we'll go into depth about that, but to conclude, throughout her arc, Kat has displayed remarkable fortitude in the face of tragedy. 
her father and husband dead, her sons thought to be dead, her sister lost to her and her daughters as well. She's attempted to embody the words of her house, though they're often at odds with one another, given a mother's priorities. She's despaired at her failures and mistakes, and lamented that she could not defend each and every one of her children with her bare hands, as she had once done for Bran. Yeah, Kat has in fact embodied George's quest to explore the human heart in conflict with itself. And this is a quote by William Faulkner that George often uses to articulate the aim of his character writing. Right. The human heart in conflict with itself is very appropriate for Kat's story, we think. She's a character who's faced endless dilemmas in Catch-22s, and whether she made good decisions or terrible ones, her goal was always to do the right thing for those she loved. But in the face of it all, she's moved ever closer to being a northerner for true, and has maintained a stoic face and steady bravery, all for the sake of her eldest son, the king in the north. And when it finally came to a mortal threat to his life, and her mind, the last of her family, her thoughts are exactly what one might expect of her at this point. Catelyn did not care. They could do as they wished with her, imprison her, rape her, kill her. It made no matter. She had lived too long, and Ned was waiting. It was Rob she feared for. In that final scene, she proclaims not only her Tully honor, but her Stark honor as well. The honor that would do anything to protect a child. And as we see when we take a look at the Red Wedding, which is next, her thoughts in the end are all for Rob and for the others already lost to her. Only when all is truly lost does Kat give herself over to the madness of grief a mother's madness that has been foreshadowed through her arc. Yeah, so we'll be looking at the Red Wedding. But first, we have a song from Carlene. This song is inspired by the Red Wedding, and we think it's a great introduction to the segment. So here's Carlene with Let It End. And who are you, the proud Lord said, that I must so low? Only a cat of a different court that saw the Shade. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And that was Carleen with a haunting take on The Red Wedding, Let It End. You can listen to more of Carleen's wonderful music at carleen.com and thanks to her for permission to use her song here. She's an artist we plan to play a lot more here on Radio Westeros and she has lots of great A Song of Ice and Fire songs already under her belt. Yeah, we love this song and really thought it was the perfect lead-in to our discussion on The Red Wedding. So, let's march forth into some disturbing territory and talk about this monumental moment in A Storm of Swords. Okay, so aside from all the hints at a conspiracy behind the scenes, which became obvious in hindsight, there were actually plenty of hints about what was to come at the Red Wedding. Now we're going to take you through these clues, from prophetic ramblings and visions, to the build-up to the actual event. From there, we'll walk through the massacre and show how the signs were all there before Catelyn realised what was happening at the Twins on that fateful day. So, yeah, the Red Wedding might be one of the most telegraphed literary manoeuvres in literature. Maybe a slight exaggeration, but let's look now at how many clues there actually were, aside from the sense of political turmoil in Rob's camp. We'll start with In Clash in the House of the Undying, where Danny sees a vision of a feast. It says, Farther on she came upon a feast of corpses. Savagely slaughtered, the feasters lay strewn across overturned chairs and hacked trestle tables, a sprawl in pools of congealing blood. Some had lost limbs, even heads. Severed hands clutched bloody cups, wooden spoons, roast fowl, heels of bread. In a throne above them sat a dead man with the head of a wolf. He wore an iron crown and held a leg of lamb in one hand as a king might hold a scepter, and his eyes followed Danny with mute appeal. Right, so here in Clash is our first hint of a massacre at a feast. A king is dead, his crown is iron, and robs his iron and bronze. I'm sure George didn't want to make the vision too obvious there. And notice the leg of lamb, which was the final and main course served at the Red Wedding. It seems here Rob is holding the leftovers from the bloody feast. But anyway, our first large and clear clue that something was going to happen at a big feast. And because it was at a feast, the reader should realise that the guest right has likely been broken in that vision. And next, just a few chapters later, there's another vision that pairs up rather well with what Danny saw. Theon has a strange dream, referring to it as dining with the dead, again a feast and death. 
After seeing a collection of people who are either dead or that he thinks are dead, Theon sees Rob enter, bleeding from half a hundred savage wounds. So, two visions, and the signs for Rob are really very ominous already, especially when you pair them together. The prophetic nature of Theon's dream, by the way, is speculated to be caused by Ned's bed, who some people think might be made of weirwood. Now, the seeds have been sown by George and Clash, and we move on to Storm. Patchface, who seems to be prophetic after his time spent under the sea, says this, Fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom. I, I, I. So, whereas the hints so far point towards trouble at a feast, here we see a link to a wedding for the first time. Fool's blood for Jingle Bell, king's blood for Rob, and a broken hymen at a wedding, and guests being chained up. Then we have Stannis burning the usurper Rob Stark's leech, and whatever Mel was up to there, perhaps there should have been some contemplation from the reader as to if it might come true, perhaps even tying back to Stannis's threat to Catelyn that we talked about earlier. Right, and so next we have the ghost of High Heart and her prophetic dreams sent from the old gods, as she says it. I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief. I dreamt such a clangour, I thought my head might burst. Drums and horns and pipes and screams, but the saddest sound was the little bells. So the music here indicates some kind of event, and there's the wolf feeling grief. The Ghost of High Heart seems to foresee important deaths, and this is just a few chapters before we head to the twins. Remember, the loud music and Grey Wind's exclusion from the hall are dwelt upon very early by Catelyn. And now, as we approach the wedding of Edmure Tully and Rosalind Frey, there's been foretelling by five prophetic sources of what is going to happen here, and they all jigsaw together. Yeah, George does like to foreshadow important events in one way or another, but he really went to town on the Red Wedding. There's also lots of foreshadowing for Lady Stoneheart that we'll be going through later. But now we're going to take a close look at the Red Wedding and highlight what happened step by step in that Catelyn chapter and the other preceding chapter. Again, we're going to show how telegraphed it all was, really, until we reach that unpleasant moment we see Kat's throat being cut after witnessing the climax of Tywin, Roos and Walder Frey's horrific conspiracy. So there's some form of foreshadowing going on with Sander. As he and Arya approach the twins, he ends a chapter with this. Keep your mouth shut and do as I tell you, and maybe we'll even be in time for your uncle's bloody wedding. Yes, bloody wedding. And in the next Arya chapter, when they're at the twins, Sandor again ends the chapter. This time he says, it's your bloody brother I want. So again, the last line of the chapter, and it's your bloody brother. George is using a play on words, and both times it's the last line, and Sander is used to deliver this device. Okay, so now we're at the twins. We want to highlight that Aya looks around and sees the tents and food and so on. Everything seems in order for a wedding. But very briefly, she notices this. Beneath a tree, four archers were slipping wax strings over the notches of their longbows, but they were not her father's archers. 
So she sees archers preparing their bows, and it's really very out of place. The scene is so quick the reader can be forgiven for not noticing how strange it is, and she makes note that these are not her father's men. Right, and also there's the musicians. It says, The musicians in the nearer castle were playing a different song than the ones in the castle on the far bank, though, so it sounded more like a battle than a song. They're not very good. Arya observed. So, Arya noticing the musicians aren't very good, remembering this is an important wedding, is another sign something amiss. The first clue these musicians aren't actually musicians at all, which we'll come back to. Hmm, and on to Catelyn. She's offered a strip of Theon's skin as a token of revenge, and part of her really, really wants to take it, but she doesn't. This theme of revenge, which will come into play with Lady Stoneheart, has been foreshadowed, as we mentioned earlier. But here it's worth noting that while she still harbours thoughts of revenge, at this point she has them under control. Right, and on to the fateful Catelyn chapter. We're going to break it down now. As with Arya, the first thing Cat notices is that the musicians are very poor, They weren't really musicians at all, is the reason. Things are out of place already, and more and more things will seem that way as we progress. Yeah, it's actually one thing after another, right through the whole chapter. Kat notices all these things, but doesn't realise what's happening until it's too late. She puts all her faith in the guest right, and thinks that Walder simply won't betray it. Right, she tells Rob... Once you have eaten of his bread and salt, you have the guest right, and the laws of hospitality protect you beneath his roof. Rob seems amused since he has a sizable army at his back, but we learned something about the solemn nature of guest right in the world of ice and fire. Yeah, the world book tells us that the guest right is treated very, very seriously in northern culture. We learn that, and quote, crimes in the north in which the guest right was violated were rare but were invariably treated as harshly as a diarist of treasons. Only kinslaying is deemed as sinful as the violations of these laws of hospitality. Hmm, so making the point of being a guest under Lord Walther's roof seems a fair bit of insurance, and furthermore, the taboo against violating such a relationship may have been strong enough to completely lull the northerners into a false sense of security. Yeah, and the next thing is how closely everyone's been seated in the hall. Kat notices this, and also that Roos seems to be acting somewhat strangely, and he's not eating much. Yeah, and she also notices that the food served is terrible for a wedding of this importance. Kat realizes that the food is bad and puts it down to the niggardly nature of the phrase. But then she sees that alcohol is flowing freely, so it just doesn't add up to her. No, it doesn't add up. The strategy is becoming clear. Cram them in, get them drunk, play the drums so loud nobody can think straight. And Kat actually thinks a wedding feast was not a battle. And of course, she couldn't be more wrong. This line is actually part of a triple pointer about weddings. Tyrion had already said earlier... There was this to be said for weddings over battles, at least. It was less likely that someone would cut off your nose. And also, later Stannis says, after the Red Wedding, 
Weddings have become more perilous than battles, it would seem. Hmm, so weddings compared to battles. Before, during, and after the weddings, red and purple. Cat sees the weapons hung up and is glad that the men are disarmed. Now they're drunk and they have no defenses. Rob is really vulnerable and Cat thinks it's safer. And of course, as pointed out earlier, she favors the strength of guest right over an army in this situation. Yes, she does. And now we also hear more about Roos and Fat Walder. There's clearly a relationship now between the Boltons and the Freys. Cat remembers Roos reminding Walder Frey at the start of the feast that Ramsay had his grandchildren. She notices that this seems to be some kind of threat, but she doesn't understand it. Perhaps it was Roos's way of saying, don't you dare back out on me now. Yeah, and then there's a reminder that Grey Wind, who Cat has long thought can sense danger to Rob, is outside after Walder has made that a condition for the wedding to proceed. Yeah, and of course, the wolves as protectors, or missing protectors, is a recurring theme with all of the Stark children, leading right up to Jon Snow when he didn't keep his wolf beside him in A Dance with Dragons. And next, Rob's squire Oliver is mentioned. He's afraid, and he's actually quite close to Rob. He's absent from the feast, and again, Cat notes this as being quite strange. Right, and next Cat inquires about Alessander Frey, who's a musician. Cat asks if he'll play tonight, and the answer is, not him, he's away. So, first Oliver is absent, then a Frey musician too. The musician is odd because it's a major wedding, the current musicians are terrible, and somehow this Alessander is just away somewhere. Yes, it's all very suspicious. Cat's subconscious is probably ringing bells by now, but she just doesn't put it all together. And now the main course, legs of lamb, are served. Remember we saw a king with a leg of lamb dead in the House of the Undying Vision. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Cat's subconscious, because Cat actually wonders if all these men will one day die in war. She often thinks of battle and death through this chapter as she's looking around at all these out-of-place things going on. It's like her subconscious is trying to tell her something. Right, and as the bedding begins, Rosalind is crying. Cat puts it down to nerves about the bedding, but Rosalind has been mentioned as crying in a previous chapter too. Cat then sees Edwin Frey refuse to dance with Daisy Mormont with unusual haste and aggression. Here's what Cat thinks to herself. What just happened there? Doubt gripped her heart where an instant before had been only weariness. It is nothing, she tried to tell herself. You're seeing grumpkins in the woodpile. You are become a silly old woman, sick with grief and fear. So, some insight into Cat's thinking. She's now gone from weariness to doubt. Notice she tried to tell herself it's nothing. Again, her subconscious is gnawing away at her, and we learn that she doesn't want to appear a silly, a paranoid woman after some of the things she's done. She's almost suppressing her instincts here, and it's really sad to know that Kat's desire to move on beyond life as a grieving widow actually prevented her from seeing shadows that were really there. Yeah, that really is horrifying, and unfortunately, the worst is yet to come. We again see these legs of lamb, I think it's four times now, reminding us of the House of the Undying. 
Then the so-called musicians start playing the Lannister theme song, The Reigns of Castamere. And yes, at this point, something seriously miss. But the final moment of realisation for Kat is when she grabs Edwin Frey, only to feel the chainmail he's secretly wearing. It says, Catelyn slapped him so hard she broke his lip. Oliver, she thought, Perwin, Alessander, all absent. And Roslyn wept. So, Cat's faith in the sacred guest right was a mistake. It's Boltons and Freys we're dealing with here, and honor seems to be lacking. Rob is shot with a quarrel, and the musicians reveal themselves to be bowmen. It's notable that Cat cries mercy here, as she's about to be reborn as Lady Stoneheart, who's also known as Mother Merciless. And then the slaughter begins, and in the absence of weapons, Small John fights with a leg of mutton, and then he's beheaded. Again, that leg of lamb in the House of the Undying Vision, where we also saw beheaded bodies, comes to mind. Rob is killed by Roos, who says, Jamie Lannister sends his regards, passing on a flippant, harmless message from Jamie, which will go on to land Jamie in serious trouble with Lady Stoneheart. Right, it will. And now Catelyn has seen, in her mind, her last son die. Her loving husband was beheaded. Bran, Rickon, and Arya thought dead to her. Sansa lost to the Lannisters. Winterfell destroyed. And now Rob slaughtered in front of her eyes. She wants to kill Lord Walder, but can only manage the simpleton Jingle Bell. And after she slits her neck... So is her own neck cut. Yeah, so we'd argue that Kat's transformation actually starts in this chapter as she descends into madness here, feeling worms all over her body and worrying about her hair. It's a truly horrifying sequence, one where George pulled absolutely no punches, and those punches were into the gut of the reader. Yeah, this is true horror in print. Remember George's roots as a horror writer. I remember when I first read it, I felt affected for days afterwards. Yeah, I was the same. I felt pretty disturbed for a few days after that. So overall, The Red Wedding was very heavily foreshadowed and telegraphed in various ways. The entire Cat chapter was a series of clues both to the reader and to Cat about what might be about to happen. It was really one thing after another if you go through and read it. Kat suffered a fate that no mother should, the terror of seeing her last son murdered whilst being helpless. And it was also a shame that Kat ended up killing Jingle Bell as her final act in her natural life. Remember the ghost of High Heart described the saddest sound in her red wedding dream was the little bells. In uh, The Red Wedding, when Jingle Bell is dead, it says that his bells were still ringing. Yeah, in the circumstances, it was understandable, but Jingle Bell wasn't innocent and Cat didn't show him mercy. The description of her cutting the fool's neck was extremely savage, and it's really sad to see how disturbed she's now become as she descends into madness. Yeah, it says that she cut through his neck to the bone. So it's very gruesome. And talking of disturbing, before we look at Lady Stoneheart, here's our reading of the gruesome climax to The Red Wedding. So hold tight. Lord Walder, on my honour as a Tully, on my honour as a Stark, 
I will trade your boy's life for Rob's. A son for a son. Her hand shook so badly she was ringing Jingle Bell's head. Boom, the drum sounded. The old man's lips went in and out. The knife trembled in Catelyn's hand, slippery with sweat. A son for a son, heh, he repeated. But that's a grandson, and he never was much use. A man in dark armor and a pale pink cloak spotted with blood stepped up to Rob. Jamie Lannister sends his regards. He thrust his longsword through her son's heart and twisted. Rob had broken his word, but Catelyn kept hers. She tugged hard on Aegon's hair and sawed at his neck until the blade grated on bone. Blood ran hot over her fingers. His little bells were ringing, 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 and the drum went boom. Finally, someone took the knife away from her. The tears burned like vinegar as they ran down her cheeks. Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. She could taste it on her lips. It hurts so much, she thought. Our children, Ned, all our sweet babes, Rickon, Bran, Arya, Sansa, Rob, Rob, please, Ned. Please make it stop. Make it stop hurting. The white tears and the red ones ran together until her face was torn and tattered, the face that Ned had loved. Catelyn Stark raised her hands and watched the blood run down her long fingers over her wrists beneath the sleeves of her gown. Slow red worms crawled along her arms and under her clothes. It tickles. That made her laugh until she screamed. Mad, someone said. She's lost her wits. And someone else said, make an end. And a hand grabbed her scalp, just as she'd done with Jingle Bell. And she thought, no, don't. Don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Then the steel was at her throat, and its bite was red and cold. So, an aptly horrifying reading of Catelyn Stark's murder at the Red Wedding. That was probably the most disturbing piece of audio I've ever made, and we wanted to try and match the HBO attempt at the scene, and I hope that we got there. Yeah, that was not easy to make. The scene is really upsetting even now. So, anyway, now we're going to look at the rebirth of Catelyn Stark as a woman given several aliases in the text. Mother Merciless, the Hangwoman, the Silent Sister, and the one we're all most familiar with, Lady Stoneheart. 
And first of all, we'll fill in what happened with Kat. After her death, she was thrown in the river naked as a mockery of the Tully funeral rite we saw with Hoster Tully. Yeah, even in death, Catelyn was shown no respect, underlining the limitless nature of Walder Frey's dishonor and pettiness. Here is a truly despicable man, but perhaps the mockery of the funeral rite will one day come to bite him on the ass. Yeah, and I think a lot of readers are obviously hoping so. And back to what happened with Cat. It's in one of Arya's wolf dreams that we get a glimpse of Cat's soon-to-be-resurrected body. That's right. Arya is thinking of her mother, and as she falls into a dream, it says, She was so close I could almost smell her. Then Arya slips into Nymeria, and suddenly she could actually smell her mother. She drags a pale white corpse from the river and then guards it against the hungry brothers and sisters of her wolf pack. And the body is in really terrible shape, but still Arya wishes. Rise, she thought. Rise and eat and run with us. So perhaps an element of foreshadowing in Arya's thoughts there about the resurrection. Then Beric, Lem and Thoros show up, which is actually the last we see of Beric. Right. And Arya, as Nymeria, leaves the body, awakes, and is told by the hound that her mother is dead. Arya replies that she already knew because of a dream. So Nymeria helped to preserve the body, and then we see the Brotherhood Without Banners arrived. Next, we move on to the Storm of Swords epilogue. Yeah, Merit Frey has been captured by the Brotherhood. Beric is absent. But there's a woman among them in a hooded cloak, three times too big for her. When Merit's trial begins and he claims his innocence regarding the Red Wedding atrocities, he goes on to claim that the Brotherhood are lacking of a witness. And it's at that moment when Tom calls Milady that the hooded woman reveals herself to be the undead Catelyn Stark to the terror of Merit Frey. Here's the first description we get of Lady Stoneheart. Her cloak and collar hid the gash his brother's blade has made, but her face was even worse than he remembered. The flesh had gone pudding soft in the water and turned the color of curdled milk. Half her hair was gone and the rest had turned as white and brittle as a crone's. Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded skin in black blood where she had raked herself with her nails. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him and they hated Yeah, and we're going to talk about her appearance a bit later. But obviously she's in terrible shape, a lot worse than the rebirths of Beric, for instance. And the first act of Lady Stoneheart, and the last of A Storm of Swords, is when she condemns Merrick Frey to death by hanging. Right, and what a huge twist at the end of A Storm of Swords there. We have, of course, seen undead characters, but this happening to Catelyn was a shock and unexpected. But at this point, we still don't know the details of her resurrection. Yeah, and it's near the end of Feast, actually, that Thoros says, Harwin begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it, so Lord Beric put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. And... She rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. Hmm. Notice the words, she rose, reminding us of Arya's wolf dream when she wishes her mother would rise. So, like we said, this was a huge twist in the story. But let's look at some foreshadowing that, in hindsight at least, let us know that Lady Stoneheart was on her way. Yeah, there's a few that readers have picked up on. 
First of all, Arya is discussing her imaginary coat of arms with Jon Snow in game. She says she wants a wolf with a fish in its mouth. It made her laugh. That would look silly. Hmm, a wolf with fish in its mouth. Not dissimilar to Nymeria dragging Catelyn from the river. Then in Clash, we have Catelyn thinking that her reflection in Renly's green-tinted armor makes her look like she was drowned. Here's a passage. Beside the entrance, the king's armor stood sentry, a suit of forest green plate, its fittings chased with gold, the helm crowned by a great rack of golden antlers. The steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate, gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond. The face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? Yeah, that's a really good one. Catelyn looking at her drowned self there. And thanks to Lady Aya's song for noticing that one. In game, there's quite an obvious one here. It says, Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone. Six brave men had died to bring her this far, and she could not even find it in her to weep for them. Even their names were fading. Yes, her heart turning to stone, Lady Stoneheart. And also notice that she can't cry, something we'll talk about later. And that kind of links in with another. When the child Lannister hostages were murdered, it says... She might have wept, but there were no tears left in her. The dead boys were pale from long imprisonment, and both had been fair. Against their smooth white skin, the blood was shockingly red, unbearable to look upon. So again, Cat can't cry, and she finds the bodies unbearable to look at with the pale skin and red blood. Remember with her raked face and her pale skin, Lady Stoneheart would be similarly unbearable to look at. And we have the ghost of Highheart, probably the biggest telegraphing of what was to come. She says, I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted with red tears on her cheeks, but when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. So the ghost of Highheart really predicts the awakening of Lady Stoneheart there. Yeah, and remember that the ghost of Highheart predicted the Red Wedding too, which we discussed. Next, we're going to talk a bit about Lady Stoneheart's appearance before discussing her role in the story. So we had the first description earlier. After three days of cat floating down the river, her skin was like pudding, a really horrible white. Her hair, she lost half of it and the rest was whitened too. But perhaps most interestingly to us, Stoneheart's face now has permanent tears of blood and scratched into it. Right. At the Red Wedding, after seeing Rob murdered and then killing Jingle Bell, Cat went crazy and raked her fingernails down her face. There was this description. The tears burned like vinegar as they ran down her cheeks. Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. Yeah, that's so disturbing. And these scratches are meant to resemble tears of blood. The ghost of Highheart already said as much in her prophecy. We highlighted earlier some of the places where Cat couldn't cry or allow herself to. And this permanent mark now becomes very poignant as a huge part of Lady Stoneheart's image. Exactly. 
And as we said, in some ways, this moment is when Cat becomes Stoneheart. The madness, the murder of Jingle Bell. She was no longer Cat there, in our opinion. And Tears of Blood is a very symbolic and significant sign to be etched upon her face now. There's an established trope for crying blood. And borrowing here from the TV Tropes website, it says... Crying blood signifies that the weeping person is in some way inhuman, or at the very least a candidate for a supervillainy and somewhat demonic entities and characters. Yeah, and that's aside from the imagery related to a person who has truly, truly suffered these permanent tears on her face. So very interesting connections there, we think, and all seem fitting to Lady Stoneheart. As glad as we all are to see Frey's hang, there's no doubt Lady Stoneheart is presented as some kind of abomination. Remember Thoros refused to resurrect her, and that the ghost of Highheart awoke in terror when she saw Stoneheart's eyes open. Right. It does seem that Lady Stoneheart is a character capable of the kind of atrocities she herself has undergone in her time as Catelyn Stark, Although there are signs she's looking for Arya and involved with the rehousing of orphans, there's one overriding motive behind Lady Stoneheart and her band of followers now, and that is vengeance. Yeah, George seems to want to bring to the surface the theme of revenge here. And what begins with the hanging of the odd fray will surely unfold into a plot of mass extermination. The audience is being enticed into supporting the notion of revenge, And I think it's natural to have a thirst for fray blood in the aftermath of the Red Wedding atrocities. It certainly is. Uh, And Lady Stoneheart's revenge arc really began with Jingle Bell, the innocent fool who she carved her knife into until reaching bone. But as we discussed in our Brotherhood Without Banners episode, the stage is being set for a more widespread takedown in the Riverlands, and we don't have any doubt that the frays at the Twins will soon be a part of the scheme. So as readers, we obviously want a taste of this revenge, but we're wondering where George will take this revenge arc. With the ghost of Highheart's observations, it's clear that Lady Stoneheart is not being set up as an admirable villain. There are ominous allusions to terror at her hands. Could Lady Stoneheart go so far in her revenge plots that we might actually gain sympathy for her opponents? Well, it's interesting. Vengeance is something George deals with very carefully. There are often moments of adrenaline that later unveil unpleasant consequences. It's true that there are Freys who probably deserve every bit of Lady Stoneheart that they'll be served, but there are also innocents among them. The kind of indiscriminate revenge that Lady Stoneheart might eventually end up subscribing to is not something we think George will want us to necessarily enjoy. Vengeance has two sides. As we said, the moment of justified retribution and then the often retrospective regret. Yeah, so as keen as we all are to see Lady Stoneheart tear apart the phrase, we do wonder if George will frame it in such a way that readers might be a little bit uncomfortable with a message about revenge tucked in there somewhere. Could readers ever sympathise with a fray? Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But if one writer could do that, it's George R. R. Martin. Yeah. As for Stoneheart target number one, Walder Frey, there is some very interesting potential foreshadowing seen back in Game of Thrones. 
Yeah, people have noticed this one and I really like it. It's when Cat meets Walder, the twins, seeking permission to cross the bridge. Here it is. I am told the Kingslayer went through him like an axe through ripe cheese. Why should my boys hurry south to die? All those who did go south are running north again. Catelyn would gladly have spitted the querulous old man and roasted him over a fire. Right, Cat's becoming annoyed with Lord Walder and suddenly she imagines roasting him on a spit. That's a very out of place notion we think and however horrifying, doesn't a part of all of us want that to happen? Yes, it's certainly an interesting line. You're right, it does seem out of place and we think there might be something to it. And if it is foreshadowing, late Lord Frey might be in for one of the most painful deaths imaginable. It might be poetic, given he broke the guess right, that he's treated like a piece of meat. We did wonder if his flesh would be served, like with the Frey pies. Oh, anyway, gruesome possibilities for the demise of Walder Frey at the behest of Lady Stoneheart. It's worth mentioning that Catelyn is, in some ways, the mother of the story, and Stoneheart is also called Mother Merciless. Yeah, and the mother of the Seven, which is Catelyn's faith, is associated with compassion and mercy. So perhaps the Mother Merciless moniker is a hint that Catelyn has turned into the antithesis of what she set out to be as a mother. In all those mentions earlier in the books of Cat needing to armour her heart and having an empty space where her heart once was, now makes sense. Lady Stoneheart now has that armour. Her heart is metaphorically stone, unfeeling of the emotional pain which blighted her later life as Catelyn Stark. And that completes our look at Cat, from loving mother to atrocity victim to agent of death. But before we go into the outro, here's our final message for today. Her lines still ached from the urgency of Ned's lovemaking. It was a good ache. She could feel his seed within her. She prayed that it might quicken there. It had been three years since Rickon. She was not too old. She could give him another son. Do you feel affected by today's episode? Did the Red Wedding disturb you? Do you feel traumatized by the writing of George R.R. Martin? Has A Song of Ice and Fire emotionally damaged you? Well, there's good news. Turn your tears into profit with Yoke Boy and Gwyn's No Win No Fee Compensation Plan. We have a team of lawyers on hand with a sole purpose of suing George R.R. Martin for the damage to feelings and emotions that we've all suffered. Let's turn the Red Wedding into the Red Suing and make this author pay for every bit of butthurt that he's put us through. Don't be ashamed to admit hurt feelings. Emotional pain is worse than a broken leg, and you wouldn't let someone break your bones and get away with it, would you? Send a raven to our team of lawyers and see what you are entitled to. No win, no fee. The Red Suing. Turn your tears into cheers.
And that's our look at Catelyn Stark, The Red Wedding, and Lady Stoneheart. We hope you enjoyed it, and we must say it was a difficult arc to cover with so many disturbing moments. Yeah, this kind of despair is a huge part of George's writing. He obviously really pulled at readers' heartstrings with Cat's arc. And funnily enough, these kind of moments are what seem to be drawing readers back for more. Right, and we felt it was important to capture the emotional perspective of Catelyn, rather than weighing in on which of her decisions were good or bad and so on. Yeah, George has said that he writes certain scenes to be interpreted many different ways, so rather than trying to force a consensus on Cat's contentious moments, we urge people to draw their own conclusions. So anyway, we hope you enjoyed the presentation and that we provoked a few thoughts today. We both felt really affected when we first read The Red Wedding, and delving so deeply into it all again had a similar effect. Yes, it did. Making that Red Wedding reading was not easy or pleasant. Anyway, as ever, we must thank the people whose creations we've used today. So thanks very much to George R. R. Martin for making us cry so much. (laughs) And thanks also to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music. His songs Night of Chaos, Unseen Horrors, and At Rest were used today. Kevin has a website called Incompetech.com where he offers royalty-free music, which is a great resource for people like us. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. And also thank you to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to remix and use elements of their music today. And thanks to Carleen for allowing us to showcase Let It End, a wonderful Red Wedding song that we hope everyone enjoyed. And full details of all music we've used is on the MP3 tag and on our website. Visit RadioWesteros.com to see our site with readings, links, and quick access to all our podcasts. You can also comment on our content there. And so it won't be too long before we have another episode with you, although we're not quite sure what that's going to be just yet, but we do have some things in the works. So thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time. So bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.